Welcome to My Favorite Mystic, a podcast about the weird and wonderful world of mysticism. I'm AJ Langley, and today I'm joined by Lydia Walker. She's Assistant Professor of History and Religion at Barton College in North Carolina. Lydia, thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. So you've joined us today to speak about Marie de Ogni. Yes. She's also known as Marie of Nivelle, since that's where she was actually born. So whichever way we want to refer to her today would be fantastic. So Marie of Nivelle or Marie Dunyi. Love a mystic of many names. We'll go back and forth. We'll use what fits and probably just call her Marie. (laughs) But before we get into her, let's talk a little bit more about you. How did you find yourself in the academic world of mysticism? I actually wasn't interested in mysticism as a field of study, I have to confess. I actually got into Marie, which then got me more interested in the field of mysticism through her hagiographer, her biographer, Jacques de Vitry. And I was working on my dissertation on his sermons and on his role during the Fifth Crusade. And he wrote her life. And he kept referring back to her when he wanted to frame the beginnings of his life, his inspiration for preaching, even why he was even good at preaching. And he was known, wildly known for preaching and for writing sermons and being involved in crusades and being a legate for the Pope, you know, working in all these other capacities later in his life. And I was more and more interested in understanding why he was so fascinated with her, because It seemed to me that a lot of people, and a lot of people have studied Marie, and a lot of people have studied Jacques, but mostly in the realm of crusades. And I felt that there was something happening in the middle there, this connection between his support of female mystics and female spirituality and his role in holy war. And so I started diving into that kind of on the back burner during the dissertation and then after the dissertation even more. And so really, I feel like it was his love of Marie that made me interested in also wanting to know, well, who's that girl? What's going on with her that you were so fascinated? I always love it when people come to their mystic through something other than their specific text. And in this case, coming to her through her hagiographer is just beautiful. Sorry, I should say one of her hagiographers, because obviously there were supplements to her work written by a second hagiographer. Have you done much work on those? Yes. So Thomas of Cantemprey, he was actually a big fan of Jacques de Vitry, but he also supported female religious communities and wrote the supplement to her life, which is a fascinating work because it reveals so much of the relationship or antagonism he had with Jacques, who had left the area and he felt was getting a little too lax, a little too wealthy, a little bit too into the honors of Rome as he was going from being a bishop to a cardinal. And so a lot of what's integrated in that supplement is prophecies of Marie reminding him, remember, Marie said you're coming back here. Remember, Marie really loved you and supported you. Remember, she said this would happen. And since you believe she is a prophet, aren't these things supposed to happen? And so the whole end of it is kind of a tirade against Jacques for not being obedient and caring about the flock that he has abandoned. So yeah, so it's a fascinating thing that really amplifies her role in healing and the role of her relics. So we get this whole afterlife of her body and of miracles that happened around it. But we also get a lot more about the relationship with her and Jacques that confirms some of the things and add on to what Jacques said 
but also really highlight this contentious, contradictory, sometimes relationship that Thomas had with someone he admired so much. So Thomas of Canterbury went on to write the hagiographies of other mystics, as well as Marie's. Did Jacques de Vitry write any other hagiographies, or was Marie just his only mystic before he, you know, ran off to Rome and got too big for his boots? So he just had one main mystic. That was one girl that he was dedicated to. He did not go on to write others. In his sermon collections and exempla, he does mention other women, not necessarily always by name, but he does recognize the holiness and good works of other holy women or good women. But it's it's Thomas that really goes on to write many more lives of women, people like Lucard and others. So for Jacques, that's what fascinated me is that he's not someone that really focused on writing the lives of men or women, but this one woman and understood his own autobiography through her life as well, really kind of marks his rise and chose to be buried also where she was. So it's his one love, I feel like. Yeah. I mean, that kind of justifies her prophecy as well. I mean, she said Jacques would come back. She didn't say he'd be alive when he came. Which is kind of ironic that Thomas doesn't, you know, because it's before Jacques is dead when he's writing. But I wonder if when Jacques died and was buried there, he's like, I guess she was right. You know, I shouldn't have been so mad at you. You did come back eventually. I mean, he was back there for the exhumation of her body and the rededication in another church. He did continue to give gifts and send relics and linens and his own books. So he never really abandoned what he saw as his obligations and his connection to this area as much as Thomas. For him, it seems like the only thing that would have made him happy is the physical presence of Jacques back in that area. So there we go. It happened, even if it wasn't necessarily as expected and not during Marie's own life. Speaking of her life, let's talk a little bit more about that. Obviously, we have these hagiographies, but how much biographical information do they actually contain? From both Thomas and Jacques Burks, that's the only biographical information we have. But thankfully, even if it's only from these two works, we do have a lot. So she was born around 1177 in Nivelle to a wealthy family, was in an area that she would have been exposed to Benedictines, Cistercians, Augustinians. And this is kind of integrated into her life, too, where she's looking up to them and wanting to literally walk in the footsteps of the Cistercians that are walking down the street. And she was also unique because she was married. So even though she looked up to these religious men, She didn't follow in the path of a religious woman and take vows. Instead, she was married and her and her husband, John, lived in a chaste marriage with his approval. And they dedicated their life to living the life of the apostles, you know, uh, giving up their wealth, caring for lepers and really dedicating their life to an ascetic ideals. So, So very much that Vita Apostolica we see in their life, but it's also in teamwork, right? You know, so her and John are working together, her and her husband. And although John doesn't make a large appearance in these things, it's very clear that for the bulk of their life, they are working together in these ways. And then it's only later in her life that she ends up moving to Onyi. And it's framed as something that she wants to be away from the crowds. You know, by then people are flocking to her and flocking to see the works and the reports of her holiness and asceticism and miracles happening, that she moves there. 
and she ends up living as a recluse in a cell attached to one of the churches. And it's there that Jacques ends up going there and meeting her. So in some ways, the way that he writes for Jacques' book, it's written in two books. We have the story of her life and her physical appearance and her extreme asceticism, things like tying a strict rope around her waist, cutting pieces of her flesh, you know, really attacking her body, not eating, a long list of painful things he focuses on. He doesn't focus as much on the work she did with the lepers and alongside her husband, the very thing that if you look at the timeline, she spends the bulk of her life doing. And a lot instead is focused on that self-martyrdom, you know, that harming of the body, really. And then in the second book, he focuses on her seven gifts of the Holy Spirit, which are another way to talk about different miracles and acts that she did. And then he picks up again with her move to Oni and takes it to her death. And so it's these two books that really do frame her whole timeline, as it were, kind of using the the seven gifts of the Holy Spirit as a framework in the second one. At her death, she sings for three days, singing songs nonstop, morning and night. And that's another kind of, you know, fascinating aspect of her life is that she has these various gifts, gifts of tears, gifts of song. But in those very things, there's all these really interesting contradictions, too. So one of the hallmarks of Marie was her development of this community around herself. So can you tell us a little bit about her community and her way of life? So earlier on, of course, she's working, helping at the Leprosarium with her husband. But she also has people from all walks of life coming to her for advice, you know, coming to her because they have an ailment. And some of these people are poor, some of them are wealthy, well-known. People like the Bishop Folk of Toulouse hears about her and hears about these communities and comes and visits and talks about being there is like, not necessarily, he doesn't use the term Garden of Eden. He uses more terms like going to a holy land, you know, like what he sees there with women weeping over the most minor sin you know, seeing acts of charity and things like that. So we have people hearing news, you know, and even Jock himself probably heard about this area from Paris. So you have people coming to that area. And then it's not always very directly said, but if you piece together the mention of these other women, because Jock says he won't write about any other women that are alive by name, but you could piece together descriptions that match the descriptions that are well-known. So people like Christina the Astonishing or Lutgard of Ovir, you know, that she is in this network of other people. Likewise, there's visions she has of the women who are called her dearest friends in Liege. And so when Liege is sacked and attacked, she has a vision that God protects the holy virgins that are jumping into the river and dung heaps and all these other things to avoid being raped. So you get a sense of her network, including this whole region and including other women who are mentioned in the Vitae of Thomas of Cantonpray. So when you start like putting it all together, you get like a squad of holy women that you want to know more about. You end up wanting to know more about what that interaction looked like. And instead, they don't often focus on that insider. You know, it ends up on the peripheral sometimes when they talk about these women. And instead, as you said, it's focusing on her self-martyrdom and her self-mutilation and this focus on the body and the suffering rather than on the good works and the community that she's building 
and all of these other aspects of her life that really would emphasize her sanctity. Yes. I mean, I do think there are moments Jacques in particular uses to show this distinction between sons of the world, he calls them, and sons of God and the sons of the world that misinterpret the things they see Marie doing or the things they hear. So for example, even on her deathbed, she's singing for three days. The second day she loses her voice. And it's said that the priest is like, whew, thank you, because I don't want people hearing this and thinking she's mad, right? But then her voice comes back the third day. <laughs> so, And then you have things like her holy tears, right? It, it says that she cries so abundantly that she has muddied footprints walking into the church. And it tells of this episode where the priest like firmly but quietly says, hey, knock it off because she's like sighing and groaning and crying. And so she exits because she knows she's not gonna be able to hold her back. And she prays after she exits that God would show him that she can't control it. And so he is in the middle of doing the mass and starts weeping himself uncontrollably. And it says that he's weeping so much that the book in front of him is completely wet. The altar cloths are wet. He's like making an embarrassment of himself, barely getting through it and realizes that this is what she feels like is that this is the Holy Spirit. So there's these moments that are used to also, I think, show that people are always viewing these women in two different ways, that some people are looking at them and going, whoa, what are they doing to themselves? And why are people listening to them? And Are they true prophets? And are these reports real? And then other people who are seeing them and Jock in a way is providing like, what is supposed to be the proper exit Jesus for these women? Like, how are you supposed to properly be reading these acts of their life? So in a way, as other people have rightly, I think, pointed out, he's writing a Vita that is more like exempla. It's more like preaching material than it does feel like a standard life. Now, this might be a weird way to phrase this, but why does her life need a supplement? What is it that Jacques de Vitry left out of his version that required Thomas to get involved? I think one of the things is that it ends abruptly at her death. Like she dies, ba-boom, the end, right? I mean, to be fair, that would make sense with regards to when a life should end. Most people would end it with, okay, she's dead. Done. Good. Book closed. Life over. Yeah. If it wasn't going to be a saint, maybe that's that's it. Right. But the whole point of, you know, OK, if it's going to be a saint, it means they're still actively busy after they're dead. And that's how you know that they're a saint. And Jacques himself, when we think about when he's writing and it's before he's leaving for the Fifth Crusade, you know, he writes it right after she dies. And so that's all that's happened. And he does say that she said some prophecies that he's not going to include until they've come about. And so you do get a sense that maybe he intended to write more later by hinting at those things. But then Thomas is the one to do so. And he's writing roughly two decades after Marie's death. And so he's got that time to supplement things he felt were left out, to get other stories from other people, but also to talk about what her body did, what the relics of her body did, what the touch relics, the things she cried on, you know, how those things were still actively supporting her communities. And Jacques himself, like if you look across his letters, you'll find evidence of those things too. You know, he famously wore one of her fingers in a reliquary in a silver amulet around his neck. And he also famously gave that finger 
to Hugo Lino, Bishop of Ostia, who ends up Pope Gregory IX. He says he's struggling with the sin of blasphemy. And Jacques is like, have you heard of my gal Marie? Like, I have this book you should read. She's helped me. She'll help you. And he gives a copy of the Vita. And then the bishop is enamored and says, do you have any relics of hers that I could borrow? And he says, yeah, I have this finger. So Thomas records this. We also see in letters where he attributes this finger with saving him in his different journeys to the Holy Land um, or to Acre rather. So yes, the supplement is about more of those healing, the otherworldly things, her visions of purgatory, her helping people in purgatory, and then what these relics and touch relics do after her death. Okay, so just really emphasizing the saintliness of Marie. Was she ever canonized? No, so she was not canonized, although she certainly is one of those people that you look up and you can find like a prayer card for her. You know, her bones were put in an ossuary and she was, you know, these relics. You can go to the museum in Brussels and see one of the reliquaries where another finger was put in that one. I'm not sure how many fingers she had left by the end of all this. So there were relics of her body that you could still see. Yeah. So in many ways, she is a fascinating figure because she also was not ever officially sainted. So in Thomas's work, you almost feel the like, hey, remember, she's still very active and she is still well-known and well-beloved and doing all these things, but we still don't see a substantial cult move beyond that region which other people have pointed out. And I think it's true for some other women in those regions too, that we see very similar lives as other women that were sainted, like St. Clair and others that were contemporary-ish and doing similar things in apostolic life, miracles, all of the things, but didn't actually get officially canonized. Do you think that had anything to do with the unofficialness of her life? Because obviously she's not a nun, She's another one of these mystics who's living outside of the ecclesiastical monastic structure. Do you think that contributed in any way? I think possibly, but I also know that like the work of Alison Moore and others have pointed out that religious communities had no problem rewriting or reimposing the vows that someone never took into their life, right? For example, we do have the liturgy for her that was for a Cistercian community. You know, I don't see that they would have really had a problem rewriting, you know, and adding a vow or two into her life and claiming her as some have done with others. So it's hard to know why. I mean, I also sometimes think, you know, she wasn't a chaste marriage, but she was married and she in many ways was in this in-between, you know, didn't take holy orders, but also was working alongside men. And not only her husband, but other preachers and people like Jacques. He even says that you can almost see it as an apology or at least an excuse that because of her such strict asceticism, she was basically not like other people. And so she could interact in an intimate way with men and women. And so perhaps some of these things that are kind of carefully dealt with in those texts didn't work in the long run, but it's hard to know because she was influential to a lot of people and her life was influential to other people writing lives about these particular type of lay holy women. Yeah, I've seen a lot of things refer to her as the first Begin, as the start of this Begin movement of these women who 
lived devout lives outside of the monastic structure, even though there's no kind of uniformity to what that life looked like. But in these works about female religiosity that discuss the Beguin movement, they often paint Marie as the person to look to if you're interested in the foundation of this movement. This is a problem because I think this is the problem with trying to frame these movements with this narrative that we see in monasticism and using that as the normative frame. So there needs to be a single founder. And even in those situations, we now are questioning, you know, is it only St. Anthony of the desert that all desert fathers followed after? Were there no other hermits at the time? Looking to find a solitary founder of something that was not an order is even more problematic, right? So I think, yeah, these groups of women who don't fit the categories are what also make them so fascinating. They were living in their communities. They were at some times, like her in the later part of her life, living in a cell as a recluse. And so your life could move more fluidly across boundaries that I think sometimes just don't fit into what we want as a neat organization of, okay, this person took vows, this person's religious. What does that mean? We want a clear, neat definition. And she just doesn't fit these definitions. Returning for a moment to this story of her traveling finger, do we have any references in her work to how she may have felt about the idea of becoming a relic? Yeah. So in the supplement, of her life, there's this fascinating scene where she's watching after a man who had died, who was a holy man. And they immediately started working to pry out his teeth for them to be relics. And she was just appalled as I would imagine any of us would be watching someone rip out the teeth of a dead person. And the guy looks at her and is like, well, I mean, you do know when you die, we're doing the same to you. And she is just like, no way. No, you're not. I don't think so. She like clearly says she does not want this done to her body. And then the story flashes forward to where after she died, the same man is trying to open her mouth and try as he may with all of his tools. He cannot do it. He remembers what she said and that this was the prophecy that she you know, said that this wouldn't happen. And he prays and she spits out like seven teeth or so. So this odd thing of saying, I don't want this done to me. And then if it's of her agency or God's agency, she will do it. But the assumption that the man can just like take her teeth because he says he's going to, it was, you know, in Thomas's supplement is presented as part of that pride and part of the process of that. And you don't often, at least in readings that I have, get these interesting accounts of the process of taking these body parts. They just seem to appear in other sources. Like they're just there, <laughs> but you don't really hear about the actual taking out of these things. So in addition to this wonderful story of the acquiring of teeth and the turning of a body into a series of relics, is there a particular vision or interaction or theme aspect of her hagiography that you find particularly interesting? So given my work is also in crusades, I'm really fascinated in this connection of holy war and holy women. And that was one of the things that I started focusing on when I was looking at her life, because she has these fascinating visions of crusaders, visions where they die on the battlefield or they die from illness on the way to go to crusade. And in particular, it would have been the Albigensian crusade at this time. So in Southern France. 
And her visions are of them being basically whisked away by angels or being given little to no purgatory. These kind of moments that are assuring any reader that the vow that they took would be enough, right? That even if they didn't die in a glorious battle, that their sacrifice would be accounted for in the same way. And I found it fascinating because in other depictions, for example, there's one where she's praying fervently for a guy and God says, you might as well stop. His card's been like stamped for hell. He was in a tournament. There's no going back. And and it doesn't say he did anything else wrong than just be a knight fighting in a tournament. But there's these other examples of people in hell, including her own mother. So to have these other examples where people are at least in purgatory, if not in hell, but these crusaders, they're okay. Almost like a Roland-esque, you know, battlefield angels picking them up. I found really fascinating. And so these kind of scenes also come up in the supplementum where one particular gentleman, it says he's coming back from the Albigensian crusade and that it was through her piety that he was motivated to even be signed with the cross. And it doesn't focus on anything he did while he was gone. It just flashes forward to him being back and he immediately wants to go see Marie and he's asking, so are the fires of hell really hot? Like, are they really hot? How hot are they? So you get the sense of perhaps trauma, perhaps something that he wants to atone for. And he comes back to her later in life. He receives a peace of mind and a miracle happens at a chapel that shows him that his sacrifice had been worth it, that his willingness to die, his willingness to be martyred, even if he never was. And, you know, there's this story where he was made fun of on the journey and that's like accounted as some sort of sacrifice. Either way, these scenes that I think stand out, but also seem to want to assure the readers that in a moment where crusading is getting quite diverse and not just at a single solitary enemy in regions that are diverse now and not just with the Holy Land in mind, that there seems an effort to want to assure through a woman like Marie that these wars are in fact still holy because these holy women also say so. And that was a big question with the Albigensian Crusade, because even though we obviously all know now that all of the Crusades were bad, regardless of where they happened, this was not another crusade to supposedly recover the Holy Land, but instead was happening against people's neighbors in France. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of Christians versus those that are being deemed not Christians, but are being considered heretics. And so, yeah, so it's kind of um, neighbor against neighbor in a way, more than person against other. It is something that is contested in the moment too, in the few sources that remain. Some are sympathetic to the plight of the heretics and what's happening in these communities. And in fact, some people have read Marie's life as something that is meant to refute these heretics or Cathars as she emphasizes things like the Trinity and the importance of the Eucharist and things that show her to be theologically sound, right? And that she is an example of that. This has been read also because of the prologue to her life, talks about how the Bishop of Toulouse had requested that this be written because he said it would be 
valuable to preach with the lives of living saints or those who had been recently living in order to defeat heresy or to fight against heresy. And this prologue was added a little bit later. It's kind of hard to read her whole life as just like, oh, this is all against heresy. But I definitely think it's an interesting frame to think about her work in light of that. These moments with the Crusaders, you know, kind of add to at least showing that there's an ambivalence to what's happening with war and, you know, what's going on at this time. And that people perhaps need that reassurance, that they are struggling and needing that kind of confirmation. I actually feel like I remember one of these instances where there was a woman who her husband was on crusade and she really wanted him to come home and Marie reacting really poorly to that. Yeah, so that's, you know, it's like the thing that you're like, of course, wives are probably praying for their husbands to come home safely. And I can't recall actually if this was Marie or Christina, because I want to say both of them have very similar episodes where they are, uh, they chastise the wife for basically praying for their husband's safe return. It's like, fine, fine, he'll make it back. But he makes it back and like dies the next day. So it's like, that'll show you, you know, because dying on the battlefield would be the safer thing for his soul, right? You know, he took crusader vow. It's just a, a pretty sure way to know that they're okay if they die in that glorious battle versus after coming back and being sick or something. So yeah, it's this interesting aspect where you get a sense where people naturally want their family members to perhaps live and return from these things, but they're also struggling with the spiritual value of going and and what does it mean if they come back? What does it mean if they die while they're gone, but not in glory on the battlefield? That these things aren't spelled out so easily when they've been taking their crusader vows. You know, there's not like a whole contract with stipulations and addendums of like, and if this happens and you die of dysentery, it means this, you know, it's like you don't always know. Yeah, I really liked that part because it makes so much sense from a practical human level that this woman would be saying, you know, I really want my husband back. Please bring him back. Please make sure he comes home. Please bring him back. And he comes back and then dies anyway. And now that's her fault. And she's responsible for what's happening to his soul. Because in some cases, as you mentioned, If they took the vow and they were headed there and they were ready to do it, that's fine in most cases. But in this particular case, it's like, no, you know what? Your selfishness has negated all of the good works that his soul was ready to do purely because you're too selfish to donate your husband to the cause. Well, and it does seem like this anxiety about what happens with the soldier that returns home. Like the other example I referenced where the first thing that this man does is go to her and ask about hell and want some sort of comfort upon his return. There seems, if we could even use the word in a pre-modern era about war trauma, there does seem to be something that these women are doing in healing in ways that are perhaps unseen as well of, of helping. And I think, you know, as much as that one episode is kind of like harsh at this wife, when I think about the readers of it, of what that would look like to them, of them feeling somehow comforted that they cheered on their husband or that they should go, you know, but it it reminds me of other, this is where the sermon aspects of these texts really come out because it reminds me of like Gerald of Wales and others who have sermon episodes 
that also talk about wives trying to restrain their husbands and then being chastised or their children getting sick or things like that happening. Jacques has a sermon story where a wife tries to prevent her husband from hearing a crusade sermon and he like is on the roof and like leans over and is still able to hear it. And so he's not able to be prevented by his wife. So a lot of these episodes giving assurance that you can't really stop them and you shouldn't try to stop them. While at the same time, I think if we push back at it and read against it a little, there's a lot of anxiety over these things and genuine concern. And I mean, she herself had a husband who obviously didn't stop her from pursuing a devout religious life. To my memory, though, he doesn't feature that much in her work. Although I feel like I remember Thomas talking about him a little bit more, almost in the sense of, look at this wonderful saintly man who allowed his wife to become a saint. Yeah, so where he appears, you're sometimes like, oh, he's still around because he's like not mentioned. Like, so he's not mentioned, not mentioned, not mentioned. And then when Jacques describes her going to Ongi, he's like with the permission of her husband and her brother-in-law, who is a priest. And so, you know, you're like, oh yeah, he's still around. I forgot about him because he's not mentioned for chapters and chapters before that. But you are like, oh, I guess he's still, he was still around and still doing things. And there is this aside that's given that look how amazing they were. Here you have husbands now that are cheating on their wives, but look at this husband who could have licit sex with his wife and still didn't. How much more ashamed should you be those who are cheating on their spouses? So, you know, it is kind of used as look at this amazing husband. But also I think it's often a reminder to the audience that Marie is not some like lone wolf doing her own thing out there, that she is constantly doing things with the agreement and permission of the men in her life too. Or at least it's kind of wedged in there to remind us, oh yeah, her husband and the priest said it was okay. So it's okay. Are there times when they tell her that something is not okay? So there's this cute moment where it's going on and on about how much she confesses and she confesses and confesses and confesses. And it was always looking for things that happen. And there's this moment where he says that they try to fight back like a smile, like a smirk when she's confessing like small things she said as a child. He doesn't say what she said, but he says they're basically fighting back, laughing at her. And that it was one of the few times they rebuked her was just kind of knock it off, stop confessing all the time because they weren't real sins. He's like, she's never committed really serious sins. And even the other ones that she was committing, they're like trying just to hold back a laugh because they're so minute and perhaps even silly. So yeah, it's definitely a reminder that there are times where her excesses could be annoying. Like the singing at her death and they're like, oh, good thing her voice went out. And like, oh, her voice is back, you know? So I think reminded, just like he did with saying, hey, the sons of the world are misinterpreting her, that even the sons of God were sometimes annoyed with her. Um, those who were properly interpreting her life were still like, this is a little extreme. And he does remind his audience that she is not to be imitated. Her excesses are not to be imitated, that that is a special privilege that was given by God. And that some of the very extreme refusal of eating and carving out pieces of her body and these type of things should not be imitated. Yeah, I feel like I don't need that memo. I don't think I would have tried. <laughs> that all seems like a lot. Did she want to go on crusade herself? 
Yes. Well, she wanted to do a lot of things that suggest that she was constantly looking up to men as her religious models. So she walked in those footsteps of the Cistercians as a little kid, it says, but that she also wanted to live a life of a mendicant and travel. She also wanted to go on pilgrimage, but every time it was her friends or her obedience that meant that she didn't go. And certainly with the Crusades too, she also wanted to testify for God. And they also held back a laugh of saying, well, what are you actually going to do there? And so she's also held back from going. But I found it fascinating in looking back over some of the things that even the otherworldly visions she has are of St. John, Bernard, Clairvaux, of men. She's constantly having her religious ideal is not a typical female religious life. Her ideal is a male religious life, which makes it, I think, fascinating to think about how she perhaps would have taken vows if she could have been a Franciscan, you know, if that worked out in the time frame and worked out for her options. But she constantly is looking up to those things. We have now found ourselves at the end of the podcast, which means I have one final question for you, which is, why is Marie d'Ogni your favorite mystic? Marie is my favorite mystic because she just doesn't fit. She defies categories in a way that is a reminder to me all the time that the medieval world was always more complicated and that perhaps the neat boxes we have for others also should be shaken up a little bit. That she could choose at a moment of time with change happening and reform happening, crusades are happening, all of these things. And that she, in many ways, like Jacques, was in a nexus between all these different things happening at the time. And I just find that her very way that she defied all these categories is perhaps something that we can look to today. You know, if someone had asked like, what exact thing do you want to be when you grow up? <laughs> you know, you have to fit in a solitary category and you have to stay in that category somehow through your life. And I think Marie perhaps is even a good reminder today that that doesn't really exist and it didn't exist then either. Amazing. Lydia, thank you so much for joining me today and for telling me all about Marie. Well, thank you. And thank you all for listening. You can follow us on Twitter at MyFaveMystic and join me next time when I speak to Joel Hecker about the Zohar.